Okay, let me give you a random word of encouragement before we turn to God's word and preach. Uh, I'm not very expressive about my love for you and to Seven Mile Road, so I'm working on that. I just want you to know how deeply I love you and this church, and two things in particular. One, my family got to go away last week for sort of a, a week off, a mini vacation, and it was wonderful, joyful, restful, a great time. But every time we're away, we're renewed in our affection and our love for you, and again, desirous to be with you, and that there really is no other place on the planet that we would rather be doing life and living and believing the gospel and being in community than with you. And we were so uh, renewed again in our affection. And then yesterday was an event for BTC, an organization that's fighting human trafficking that many of us are a part of. And it was a wonderful night. In one night, they raised over $93,000. So it was, yes. And as I was there, I was particularly moved that much of the manpower of the night came from this church. Uh, literally dozens of you, and that's not an exaggeration, dozens of you have served in so many different ways, and you are some of the most humble and gifted and sacrificial and generous people that I know, and there is really nowhere else I would rather be. I am so grateful to God for letting me be a part of this church and be with you. I love you dearly with all affection in my heart. You will not hear anything like that from me again for two years, so I hope you are really encouraged. Um, let's pray together, and then we'll consider God's word. Our Father, we give you thanks for this morning. We thank you for all the grace that you've extended. If we're willing to receive it, you're ready, and here, even this day, to pour out to us grace upon grace, to bless us. Would you give us the grace to step in and receive all that you would have for us, to open up our hearts and, and cup our palms to be ready to receive from your hand as you meet us in song, as you meet us in your word, as you meet us at the table and feed our souls. As hungry and desperate people, we come to you so we know uh, you will reveal yourself to us. Come, move by your Holy Spirit. Show us Jesus and our need for him and how that need has been met in him and through him and by him. Come do a great work. Speak specifically to us through your word. We would ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Any Breaking Bad fans here? Uh, the rest of you are not going to raise your hand or you don't like the show. Any, any Breaking Bad fans? I'm sure there are, right? I have heard so much about the show. I didn't watch it when it came out, but I heard all the hype around it. I talked with Sibby. Sibby said it was the greatest thing he had ever seen on TV. I talked with Shibu. The only other times I've heard Shibu as passionate as he is when talking about Breaking Bad is when he's talking about food. So I knew I needed to watch the show, right? So I've seen some of the episodes because of the hype. And here's what I find most fascinating about the show. The, the show is most intriguing to me because the characters in the show are so well-developed, right? There's sort of a, a great depth to all the characters. They're very 3D. They're not flat, two-dimensional. They're sort of multi-dimensional. There's shades to them and nuances to them and a real reality that you can relate to. So the good guys aren't just good and the bad guys aren't just bad. There's all this dimension to them. And perhaps nowhere is that more clearly seen than the central character of the show, the man named Walter White. Okay, for those of you that are even more culturally ignorant than I am, 
let me tell you who Walter White is. Uh, Walter White, the story is centered around this high school chemistry teacher who finds out that he's got terminal lung cancer and now has a pregnant wife and a crippled son that he's got to provide for. And so the story turns that in this desperate desire to provide financially for them, this chemistry teacher becomes a drug dealer or a drug manufacturer. And as that ridiculousness comes out of my mind, mouth, you get sort of the tension of the story, right? It's this central character. He's this hero, but just you can hear from what I just described to you how conflicted you are in watching this whole thing. You can hear the tension. Here's this central figure who is trying to save his family, but he's doing it by becoming a, a drug manufacturer or a drug dealer. And that's sort of the, at least the few things that I've seen, the crux of the whole thing, is that what you have is a, a savior, that's what he's trying to be, he's trying to save his family, but he's a deeply flawed savior, right? He's a hero, but he's a really broken hero. It's almost as if Breaking Bad's hero is himself badly broken, right? A very flawed person. And so in the, in the episodes I've seen, you've already seen him make some horrific moral choices that really trouble you. And so any viewer is sort of left in this middle place of you're rooting for him, and at the same time, you're really bothered by him and really troubled by the choices that he makes. In summary, what I would say is he's a hero, sort of. He's a savior, kind of. And that sort of, kind of, reminds me a lot of the person we're going to be talking about today. We're in Judges 13, and we're up to the story of a man named Samson. If you've got a Bible, turn to Judges chapter 1. That's where we're going to be parked out. If you don't know where Judges is, there's a table of contents in the front of the Bible. Nobody in the room knows where Judges is, so you don't have to be embarrassed looking there. Look there and park in Judges with me. And this week, we're considering the story of Samson. If you're new here, we're a part of this sermon series called Shadows. And what we're doing is we're trekking our way through some of the stories of the Old Testament, the first half of our Bible, and seeing how those stories point us to a bigger story, namely and specifically about Jesus Christ. So we've been walking through some of the figures of the Old Testament. This week, we're up to Samson. And I want to tell you, it's a perfect comparison because when you get to Samson, you find a hero, sort of, a, a savior, kind of. You find a, a, a savior that is deeply flawed. You find a hero that is badly broken. That's who Samson is, okay? Samson's story is found in the book of Judges, and if you're there, here's what I want to say. Uh, if you're going to understand Samson's story in particular, You've sort of got to back up first and understand the story of Judges in general. So you've got to almost understand the book as a whole if you're going to understand his story specifically. Now, in your daily devotionals, as you're trying to read the Bible, uh, Judges is probably not one of the books you're often coming to. So I want to give you just some frames, some background, so that you understand what's happening in Judges, so that you can then specifically understand what's happening with Samson. So here, here's a bit of the background. If you've been following this series with us, you've seen that there's sort of this progression that's been happening. God's people, named Israel, were in slavery. They've been set free by Moses. And if you were here last week, Binu preached how they had been brought to the land God had promised, called the promised land, Canaan, by a man named Joshua. 
And Venu last week dealt with the difficulty of God's command that they were to wipe out all the inhabitants of Canaan so that they might own this land wholly separated, consecrated to God. Right? So Benu dealt with that difficulty that what they were commanded to do was drive out all the inhabitants of the land. There were a bunch of sinful people who were engaged in all kinds of wicked practices, child sacrifices to their false gods, idol worshipers, and all the rest. And God's verdict was they were to drive them out. They would have nothing to do with the idols of Canaan or with the idol worshipers. They were to drive them out completely so that they could be consecrated, set apart, separated unto God. And so when you get to the end of the book of Joshua, right before Judges, Joshua's going to die. And when he dies, the people of Israel do what they're supposed to, sort of, kind of, for the most part. They do drive out these people, sort of, kind of, for the most part. And that sort of, kind of, for the most part, makes all the difference in the world. For example, if you're in Judges 1, look there for a second. If you read verse 21, it says, The people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites, who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day, right? And just that verse is saying, look, you've got a tribe in Israel. What they had been commanded to do was drive out the idols and the idol worshipers. But Benjamin didn't really do that. And so they lived with some of the Canaanites. If you look down at verse 27, you see the same thing. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean. If you go down to verse 29, and Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. And so on it goes. And here's the point. With each of these verses, what Judges is introducing you to is, look, the people sort of half-heartedly did what God had called them to do. They didn't fully drive out the idols and the idol worshipers. And instead, what they did is they sort of lived with them, kind of. And inevitably, what God had not wanted for them is exactly what happens, which is that by not warring against them, they end up living with them and accommodating them and adopting them and their idols. It's almost, if you will, a picture that if you are not warring with sin, you're going to end up living with sin, right? It's, it's, there's no neutral ground. You, you can't be Switzerland on this. You're either going to be at war with sin or you're going to sign a peace treaty with sin, but it's one or the other. There's no half measure. You're either going to drive it out of your life and you're going to be at war with this thing constantly or you're going to accommodate it. Think that you'll manage it, tame it, live with it, live next to it until you find that you are bowing to it. There's no one, there's no both, it's one or the other. And so Israel serves as this vivid picture as a people who were supposed to be separated for God, consecrated, wholly His. And yet they've allowed sin and idols to live next to them to the point that they now adopt these idols as their own. And that's exactly what happens. In fact, if you want a summary of the book of Judges, you look at chapter 2, verses 11 and following. Let me read this to you. It's a lengthy section, but it'll give you an idea of what the whole book is about. This is Judges chapter 2, verses 11 and following. This is what it says. 
And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Those are the idols. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. So they abandoned God. They went after the other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. So there you see it. They haven't driven these people out, and instead they adopt the gods of the people around them and bow down to them. And they provoke the Lord to anger. They abandon the Lord, verse 13, and serve the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. All right, pause there. That's a mouthful, but here's what it's saying. If you want to know what the entire book of Judges is about, and hopefully this will help you gain some literacy in the Old Testament, what's the whole book of Judges about? It's this vicious, horrific cycle that happens over and over and over again. What you just read was a summary, and here's the cycle that happens. It's that the people abandon God. They go after the other gods of the land. They leave the God who had saved them and rescued them and loved them and provided for them. They, follow, they don't want him anymore. They abandon God. So God hands them over to those other gods and to those other people. He says, this is what you want, have it your way. He hands them to their oppressors. Their life under their oppressors is so miserable that they then cry out and go, oh God, please rescue us, please forgive us, please come back, please show mercy. And God has pity on them, and so he raises up a judge. Now judge, don't think judicial robe on a bench. Think savior, deliverer, that's what it was. He raises up a savior or deliverer or judge to rescue them. They follow God for as long as the judge is alive, then he dies, and they go right back to sin. They leave God, and God hands them to their oppressors, and they cry out, and God raises a judge. He dies, they go to sin, and then they're oppressed, and then they cry out, and God raises a judge. And I'm not kidding. This is the story of judges over and over and over and over again. This horrific cycle of leaving God, of being oppressed, of crying out, of God showing mercy and raising a savior for them to only do it over and over and over again. On your own time today afternoon, you should read Judges 3. In Judges 3, you'll see it right there in just a few verses. And so the people sinned, and God handed them to their enemies. And then they cried out, 
and God raised up a judge. But then the people sinned, and God handed them to their enemies, and so on and so on it goes. In fact, when you get to the end of Judges, this happens a dozen times. With no exaggeration, 12 cycles of this. So that by the time you get to Judges 13 and the story of Samson, he is the 12th judge for this thing to happen. He's the last of these judges. This has happened 12 times, and now we pick up his story in Judges 13, verse 1. Here's what it says. And as soon as you hear it, you know you're about to enter the loop again. Judges 13, verse 1 says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There it is again. Just in that one verse, we know we're about to enter the roller coaster and go on the loop again. They're sinning. And what do we expect? They've sinned. They've abandoned God. God's handed them to their deliverers. And so we know what's going to come next. Except here's the thing. For the first time in the book, you're missing something. It's like the circle's broken. Because what they should do now is that being oppressed under the hands of their enemies, they should finally come back to their senses and cry out to God for mercy And yet what's noticeably absent in this 12th cycle is there's no cry from them. There's no God we're sorry from them. It's almost as if Judges is this picture of this downward spiral that gets worse and worse and worse to the point that now they don't even care. It's to the point where now forget about warring their oppressors. They're just trying to find a way to live peacefully with their oppressors. They don't want to be delivered anymore. They don't want to be rescued. They don't want to be saved. The Philistines are ruling over them for 40 years, and they're just trying to figure out how to make it work. There's no cry. And so what you'd imagine is, okay, so if the cycle's been broken, then if ever God was going to be done, it should be now, right? You can relate to this. I can relate to this. Have, Have you ever said, God, I'm really sorry for that. I'll never do it again. Please just rescue me from this thing. And he does. And, and before, what, 24 hours pass? You're right back there again going, God, I'm sorry, but I'll never do this again. I promise. Please forgive me. And he rescues you. And, and this cycle happens over and over again. And these 12 cycles are this picture of God's unending patience with sinners. That as often as they make their promises and as often as they leave him, as often as they cry out to him, he continually keeps showing mercy. And now they've gotten to a place where they're not even crying out. They're so spiritually apathetic, they don't even make a plea. There is no cry for mercy. And so if ever there should be a time where God goes, we're done. No more cycles, no more of this. You live with the Philistines. That's what you want, that's fine. Yet that's not the God of the Scriptures. And in fact, you'll find in your own story, sometimes God wants for you more than you even know to want for yourself. Thankfully, God rescues you even when you don't have the sense to cry out for rescue. He stoops down and helps even when you're not even spiritually aware enough to ask for help. And so, though there is no cry, God is going to be at work here again. 13 verse 2, this is what it says. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had no children. Just a clue. Whenever you read that a woman was barren in the Old Testament, you should immediately expect she's going to have a baby. 
because every time they're barren, it's just sort of setting the stage that something amazing is going to happen. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, all these early women in Genesis, all barren, no hope. What do you know? They get pregnant. Same thing here, 13 verse 3. Here's what happens. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and she shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So here's what happens. Into this sinful people, God sends an angel to a woman who cannot conceive and promises her that she is going to conceive and bear a child, and not just any ordinary child, that this child is going to be a savior who will save God's people. And man, if shadows is a title that means anything, of course you begin to see some of the shadows that emerge. Uh, an angel is going to show up to a woman who can't have children and tell her she's going to miraculously conceive and give birth to a savior, of course that's whetting your appetite and getting you ready for something even greater. In the text, you're also told these specific instructions. He's to be a Nazarite. Now, what's that? It's these strict particulars, some strange laws to us. And what the point is, is that this child is going to be completely separated, consecrated, wholly separated unto God in the way that Israel was supposed to be. And so you get some of these rules. He's not to have any wine. He's not to eat anything unclean. So no wine, no pork, no haircuts, no touching corpses. These are some of the rules for him as this this set-apart one. You've got to think of Samson and picture almost like a, a kosher Fabio. That's what you're thinking. Long hair, really built, no pork, no wine, right? That's what God has him set up to be. And Judges 13, 24 tells us of his birth. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. So here's the point. They're in their sin. They need a savior. God sends an angel to tell this woman a savior will be born. Today for you is born a savior. And so all of a sudden as you're reading Judges, some hope begins to emerge in your heart and you go, this child announced by an angel to save God's people has arrived and come, miraculously conceived. This is the one. And, and all your hope is in this little boy born in this town for the people. That hope lasts one verse. One verse. Because by the time you finish his birth and you turn one chapter to chapter 14, verse 1, the first thing that you read is that this grown Samson sees a Philistine woman and wants her. Now, remember what we said so far. Israel was supposed to be so set apart to God, they were not to have anything to do with the idols or idol worshipers. They, they weren't even supposed to be in the same land with them, and now Samson wants to be one with them. Samson sees a gal from the Philistines. He has this surge of lust, and he immediately wants to marry her. He's not even supposed to be in the same land with the Philistines, and now he's arranging a marriage with one. And you go, this is not the Savior we were hoping for. 
He goes home after seeing this woman from Timnah, a, a, a Philistine gal, and he tells his dad and mom that he wants to get married. And they plead with their son saying, look, there's all these daughters of those who worship God for you to take a wife. Are you really going to go to the ones that God has told us to have nothing to do with? And then you read something about Samson that's going to keep recurring throughout his story. In 14 verse 3, you can just hear it. It says, get her for me for she is right in my eyes. And that becomes a theme throughout Samson's life. Samson does whatever's right in his eyes. In fact, if you read the story of Samson, there's never been anything Samson's ever seen and wanted that he hasn't had. You never see the guy say no to himself in the whole story. If he sees it and it seems right in his eyes, he does it. He takes it. It's going to be his. He does whatever is right in his own eyes. And so Samson is ruled by these lusts. And in fact, as you read the story of Samson, what you're going to find is the only thing more remarkable than his incredible strength is his remarkable weaknesses. You're not going to read anyone that is as strong and as weak at the same time as Samson. He's ruled by these lusts, and two lusts in particular, one for women and one for blood. So whenever you read Samson's story, he's either sleeping with someone or fighting someone. That's what Samson's going to do, the whole story. And he's ruled by these lusts, and you see it as you keep reading the story. Here's what happens. He grabs that girl from the Philistines. He marries her. At the wedding, he makes this wager with some of the Philistine guests. It turns out that they cheat him in that wager. They win the bet. He gets so angry that this then starts a cycle of revenge back and forth. They trick him. He goes out and kills 30 of them. They then get back at him. He's going to have revenge again. So he sets a whole field on fire. That's his revenge. Well, the Philistines are going to act back. They set his wife and his father-in-law on fire. So now he's got that happen. So he's going to go back at them and kill a bunch of them. They're then going to come and arrest him. It keeps going back and forth, back and forth, until you get to the scene where he's bound up and a thousand Philistines come to arrest Samson. And you get a picture of how strong this one man is. This is not a battle of one army against another. A thousand soldiers have strapped on their gear to arrest this one man named Samson. And no one would ever come close to him, but he pretends that he's confined by ropes so that as the thousand draws near, he grabs the closest thing he can find, which happens to be the jawbone of a donkey, and in that one battle slaughters a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. So now here Samson is standing knee deep in blood. His lust for blood has been filled, so now it's time for what? It's time for women, right? He's knee deep in blood, and so now 16 tells us the first thing that happens after that. 16 verse 1, he sees a prostitute in Gaza, that's Philistine land, and what does Samson do? Whatever's right in his eyes, Samson takes. So now after slaughtering a thousand men, 16 verse 1 says he sees a prostitute in Gaza and he sleeps with her. So again, that's not exactly kosher for a Nazarite to do. This was a man who was to be set apart, wholly consecrated, separated unto God, have nothing to do with the idols or idol worshipers. He's married one, gotten her killed, now finds a prostitute, slept with her, and yet all of that is just setting the stage for the final woman that will do him in, right? 
Samson is this hero, and he's either violent or promiscuous throughout whole, the whole story, and this wife and this prostitute is just setting you stage for the last one, and that's this woman named Delilah. Okay, now whether you know the scriptures or not, whether you know the Bible stories or not, if you've heard the term Delilah before, it's probably associated with some kind of seduction or temptation, right? Delilah's become this famous name because there has never been a temptress greater than Delilah. That's what her name will forever be about, and that's what happens here. Samson falls in love, head over heels, for another woman. And so he falls head over heels for Delilah, and the Philistines, the enemies, know of his strength, but they also know of his weakness for women. And so they go to Delilah, and they arrange a deal. And they say, listen, there's no way any one guy can kill a thousand men. There's some secret to his strength. You find that out for us. And the text says, you literally, you seduce him and find out the secret to his strength. And so here's what she does. She feigns to be his lover, pretends to be in love with him, only to try and find out what this secret is. Five different Philistines, Lord, each offer her 1,100 silver coins. And so that's 5,500 pieces of silver. That's 150 pounds of silver. That's how badly they want Samson. And so she makes it happen. I'm going to summarize quickly for the sake of time. She goes to Samson and tells me, tell me what the secret of your strength is. And so he gives her some kind of runaround. He says, oh, you got to tie me up with some cords. She does that, he breaks free. She goes, oh, you didn't tell me what it really was. you got to tell me really what is it. He says, you got to tie me up with some fresh new ropes. She does that, he breaks free. Oh, you don't really love me. Please tell me what the secret of your strength is. Oh, you got to weave my hair, then my strength will be gone. She does that. And you think... You'd think after three tests of her doing this, Samson would go, uh, maybe I shouldn't keep telling her this, right? Maybe, maybe something's not right here. And yet she pleads and she whines and she, it says, presses him so that his soul felt like it was going to die until finally he tells her, 16 verse 17, this is what it says. And he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak like any other man. So here he is. He's not supposed to even be near the Philistines. And now he betrays his God by abandoning God and divulging everything to this Philistine woman. And so now she literally has his head in her lap. He's not to be anywhere near the Philistines. She's got his head in her lap. She puts him to sleep, pretending to be his, the love of his life, calls in a barber who gives him a trim. He wakes up just like every time before. She shouts, the Philistines are on you, and he wakes up, and he's ready to fight them off just like he had done three times prior. Except then you read perhaps the saddest verse in the whole story, maybe the saddest verse in the whole book. This is Judges 16, verse 20. It says, and she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep, and he said, I will go out as the other times and shake myself free. But then listen to this. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And, and you think of what a tragic scene this is. 
This man who had been conceived miraculously, announced by an angel, supposed to be the savior, fight off the enemies, and now God had left him and he didn't even know it. He didn't even know that he was alone, that he was done, that, that now God himself had left him. It's as if God had been holding on to Samson the whole time by his last strand. All these vows that Samson had that he had broken carelessly. He was never supposed to touch a corpse. He's touched thousands of corpses. He, he was never supposed to drink wine. All he did was party with women and wine. And now it's as if God was holding him by a hair and God and Samson lets even that last hair be cut. And so now he's alone, abandoned. He, he doesn't even know that God has left him. And here's the point. When Israel's reading this, Israel's supposed to go, we're Samson. Right? When they're reading this, they're supposed to go, his story is just to tell us our story. You know why? We were called out by God, miraculously brought about by God. We were supposed to be set apart for God, consecrated to God, wholly set apart to God, having nothing to do with the foreign gods or the idols or the idol worshipers. And yet, rather than warring with them, we're finding ourselves with our head in their laps, bowing down to the very enemies we were supposed to drive out Samson is to serve to them a picture of what they're like. In fact, remember we've been saying Samson does whatever's right in his own eyes. That's not just Samson. That's all of Israel. In fact, let me read you the very last verse of the book of Judges. Here's how it ends. There's no happy and they lived happily ever after in the book of Judges. In fact, the book of Judges ends with the most morbid verse you could imagine. This is how Judges ends, 21 verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Did you hear that? This is of all of Israel. There's no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so Israel's supposed to say, we're just a nation of Samsons. Just a whole bunch of half-hearted, inconsistent, abandoning God Samsons, ruled by our passions Samson's, following other gods, following the lusts of our eyes, Samson's. And, and it's as if Israel was supposed to realize, and just like Samson had fallen asleep and was unconscious to the fact that God had left them, Israel was unconscious to the fact that God had abandoned them also and left them to their enemies. And, and Seven Mile Road, if you read the story, Samson's supposed to serve not just as a picture of what Israel's like. Samson's supposed to be a mirror for what you're like. Have you ever gone through that cycle? I, God, I promise I'm never going to do that again. Just bail me out one more time. Only to go back like a dog goes to its vomit to the same thing. And then in your oppressed state, when the sin is so heavy on you, you cry out again, bail me out one more time. I'm really sorry. It'll never happen again. And he does, only to find that you go back to the same thing over and over and over again. Have you ever found that your life seems to make allies with the sins you're supposed to war against? That rather than fighting this thing, you've signed a peace treaty with it. In fact, worse, you're in bed with the thing. 
you're in bed with the thing. Samson's supposed to serve as a vivid picture for all of us. And, and here's Samson's end. He's captured in that moment by the Philistines. And perhaps in a twist of irony, you know what they do to him? They gouge out his eyes. The whole story, he did whatever was right in his own eyes. And in the end, his eyes are plucked out of his face. And now he's put in a prison to work a mill like a little slave girl. You come to this tragic end of Samson's story, and just when you're about to close Judges and it's about to be done, you read this very peculiar verse, 16 verse 22. It almost seems like a random detail, but as soon as you hear it, you know what's about to happen. 16 verse 22, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. It's almost like this little detail, like in any movie where all of a sudden the hero's down and out and suddenly something happens. It's like back in the day I used to watch wrestling. You know when Hulk Hogan was down and at the last second he'd like start slapping his hand and suddenly he'd start coming up and you're like, oh my gosh, he's back. The hair on his head started to grow again and you go, something's about to happen. So let me summarize and tell you what happens at the end of the story. The Philistines gather together, 3,000 of them in this big building to have this great party. They put up their idol Dagon and they have this great feast to celebrate how Samson has fallen into their hands. Remember, a thousand of them he had killed. And now the invincible, unconquerable Samson is before them and he's a blind slave. So here's what they do. They bring him out for sport so that they could entertain the 3,000 of them. They're wine and drinking and everyone's having a feast and they bring out poor blind Samson, groping now, unable to see, can't fight off anyone, can't even see anyone. And they ridicule him and they mock him and they make sport of him. And blind Samson somehow with the help of a little boy, you think of that, this man couldn't have been contained by a thousand soldiers and now he's being led by a little slave boy. He begs the slave boy to take him to the pillars of the building. And then this is what it says, 16 verse 28. Great ending. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. It's this incredible finale to such a fascinating story. He pushes out the pillars with these outstretched arms. The whole thing collapses and he kills more of God's enemies in his death than throughout his whole life. Don't miss that. He secures this great victory through outstretched arms in his death, defeating God's enemies by dying. And again, the shadows begin to emerge. But here's the thing. It's a great victory, but it's at the same time a tragic victory. It, it's, it's this, you can't get past this thing. He's a savior, but he's a deeply flawed savior. 
He's a hero, but he's a badly broken hero. Because here, even in the hour of his death, as great as that victory is, do you hear what his prayer is? It's, it's the one time you see Samson praying. And even that prayer is not, God, let me finally live up to what you had called me to be. And let me save Israel. Do you hear his prayer? It's, God, they took these two eyes of mine. Would you let me have one last act of vengeance on this scum? And then he does his deed. It, it's this victory, but it's a flawed victory. He's a hero, but he's a badly broken hero. He saves Israel, but it's a profoundly ruined saving. And you know that because I just told you how the book of Israel, how the book of Judges ends. That even after this great tragic victory, Israel is no better. After Samson is when you read, and there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I mean, if there was ever a wasted life, here's Samson. And the point is this. When you get to the end of Judges, and even after Samson has died, Israel's no better off, which means, friends, Israel needs a better Samson. Isn't that the point? If, if there is no happily ever after, and if the end is, and everyone did what was right in their eyes, aren't you left at the end of Judges going, there's got to be a better Samson. We need a better judge. We need a better savior, deliverer. And, and in fact, you almost can't help but go, Samson needs a better Samson. Samson needs someone to save him. And that's what the shadow's about. Because when you turn to the New Testament, you find that an angel named Gabriel shows up to a girl who was not supposed to conceive and announces to her that she is going to bear a son, and not just any son, but that she is going to bear the one who is going to save God's people from their sins. And, and then when you read this story of this better Samson, you're, you're sort of brought back and going, this, this Jesus is who we needed. When you see someone pretending to love Jesus, even kiss him on his cheek, grab his face in his own hands and kiss him on the side, and then sell him out for pieces of silver, you can't help but think, this is a better Samson. And when you see this one who also was handed over to the pagan lords of his day, brought out for sport, this better Samson who was made to entertain. In fact, do you know what they did to Jesus when they arrested him? They blindfolded him. And they brought out blind Jesus. And in fact, they punched him in the face and said, tell us who hit you. And they mocked poor blind Jesus, blindfolded before them as they ridiculed him and paraded him around. This is the one who is going to save Israel. We got him. And made sport of the better Samson. Until this better Samson also was stretched out his hands. And in his death, secured a greater victory than you could possibly imagine and had accomplished an incredible victory in his death, defeating Satan and defeating sin and defeating death itself through his 
death. But here's the thing, the last thing I want to say and then we'll be done. Jesus isn't just another Samson. Jesus is a better Samson, right? Jesus is the true and better Samson, better in his life and better in his death. Jesus is better in his life and in his death. Would you think about this for a second? Think of Samson's whole life. A flawed hero. A badly broken savior. If you read Samson's story, there isn't a woman Samson comes across that he doesn't use or neglect or hurt in some way. Every interaction he has with a woman is self-centered for his own purposes. He's got a wife. He ends up getting her killed. He's got a prostitute. We don't even read her name. He uses her once and he's done. And then he's got Delilah, this horrible relationship where nothing goes right. And and throughout his life, he, he never bows to listen to anyone. His father and mother had begged him to do the right thing. But Samson does whatever is right in his own eyes. But the better Samson comes. And just consider Jesus' life and tell me if he's not the man you would want every man to be like. There's never been a woman Jesus met that he didn't honor or serve or respect or save. You read every interaction Jesus has with a woman and and you can't help but go, this is the better Samson. He's sitting with a woman at a well. She's had five different husbands and yet he loves her and serves her and ministers to her. He finds this woman that's caught in adultery and everyone's got rocks in their hands ready to pelt him and this strong savior comes and stands between an angry mob with rocks in their hands and rescues her. In every way, this better Samson had a better life. And where the first Samson did nothing according to his father's will, this one said, not what's right in my eyes, but let your will, Father, be done. And the better Samson is not just better in his life, but better in his death also. Would you hear that with me also? Samson, what does he do? At the end, he cries out for vengeance. But at the end, Jesus cries out for mercy. Samson says, let me die with the Philistines. Jesus doesn't die with his enemies. He dies for them. He dies for his enemies. Down to his final hour, you know who Samson's seeking? Samson. Lord, give me vengeance for my two eyes and what they have done to me. But down to his final hour, you know who Jesus is thinking of? He says, Father, forgive them for what they have done to me. Down to his final hour, Jesus is thinking of you, of another, rather than himself. And Samson displays his incredible strength by crushing his enemies. Jesus displays greater strength by forgiving them. He said, I have a legion waiting that I could call and wipe out all my enemies. But he doesn't crush any. He forgives all. When Samson's story is done, all his enemies are buried under a rubble of rocks. But here's the beautiful good news of the gospel. When Jesus' life is done, the same murderers who were standing beneath the cross Many of them were so transformed that 50 days later, when he had risen and gone to heaven, those same ones would be buried under the waters of baptism and now become his followers. Jesus, too, rid his enemies, but he rid them 
by turning them into eternal friends. That's how he transforms them because he's a better and stronger savior. Here's the point. When you read Samson, I find I'm so much like this man. Minus the good looks and the muscles. I'm Samson, ruled by my passions, conflicted in this vicious cycle of promising God I won't do things that I go back to do, of being wholly set apart, called out, and yet finding I'm in bed with the things I should be at war with, finding that there's this mixture of good and evil so deep in me that I'm badly broken. God's got great call on your life, my life, and yet I'm finding I'm so badly broken, so deeply flawed. And the good news is Israel needed a better Samson. Samson needed a better Samson. You need a better Samson. I need one too. And so God sent Jesus. God sent Jesus to save such as us. Let's pray. Our Lord, we gladly confess that all our hope is in you, and we, even now with our souls, run to Jesus, the stronger and better Savior, who did everything in life and in death better than the first Samson, and has secured for us a great victory, and has transformed us from enemies to friends. O oh Lord, only you can come, even this moment, and break the cycle. You can do that. Samson couldn't. Israel ended up doing what was right in their eyes. But you can write a new story for us and break the cycle so that even now we might find mercy from you and be transformed. To no longer be inconsistent, idol-worshiping enemies, but eternal friends of God. We needed a better Savior, and that's who Jesus was. So that now the trajectory of our story is different than Israel's we have a better Savior in Christ. Come and show us what that means in wonderfully deep ways and do a work in our life that we might actually not just hear but know you to be the best Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.